Today's episode of Grad School Confessional is brought to you by the real world. Legends tell of a world outside of the academy. A land where people don't judge each other by how many publications they have, or what their H index is, or the size of their grants. A land where people make money and are treated with respect by their employer and make a difference with their work. I've yet to see this fabled place from atop the ivory tower, but I hope that one day a brave knight will whisk me from academia to the kingdom of industry. You're listening to Grad School Confessional, a podcast that explores the good, bad, and ugly of graduate school, directly from graduate students themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Yoa Sway. From awkward supervisor interactions, to reviewer two horror stories, to convincing your parents why grad school was a good idea, we read out the confessions of graduate students from all over and chat about the realities of pursuing higher education. I'd like to welcome back my co-host and academic cellmate, my wife Anna. Anna is a PhD candidate studying digital health, a field where researchers ask, aren't Fitbits and Apple Watches just really expensive mood rings? Mm, I think so. Here, look at mine. What do you see? Uh, it's, it's blank. What does that mean? I think it means I'm dead? You mean the watch is dead? You tell me. Ah, your hand is so cold. Why is your hand so cold? Ugh, oh, touch me. Anyway, today's confessional is all about the impact of academia. Or rather, no, just warm your hands up. Or perhaps the lack of impact in academia. I think it's a running joke at this point that researchers kind of exist in this ivory tower of knowledge and that the research we do is just so niche and complex that only like 10 other people can understand our papers. And like of those, only two people really care, you know? Uh, petition to change ivory tower of knowledge to ivory McMansion of knowledge. Yeah, no, I kind of get it because I think... Because, you know, the quality of the building materials <laughs> is just... Uh, not up to standard. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. And I think also, too, the tower evokes this imagery of, like, nobility and, like, you know, it's just, oh, it's so grandiose when really it's just, like, everyone kind of decided to build their own thing and, like, it doesn't look good. No, nobody followed a blueprint. It's just like, we'll put some pillars here. Why? Is it for structural support? No, no, no. no. I just really like pillars. <laughs> Academia is like, you know, when you're walking through a neighborhood and you see, like, a very modest bungalow, and there's just, like, two lines in front of it. And you're like, ah, oh, design choices were made here. Not good ones. That's, that's academia. Yeah. So, question. How do we measure impact in academia? If you're 45 and still alive, you've made... 45 and still alive. <laughs> Completely unscripted, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> she's bowing right now. You can't see, but she's, she's bowing. Um, okay, but seriously, though, like, I, I suppose it's different. I should reframe the question. Because I think impact in academia is different depending on who you ask. I think in terms of, like, the university itself and, like, the administrative side of things and whatnot... Mm -hmm. Impact is like how many publications you're getting, how many grants you're bringing in, you know, how other, other people are basically writing your name down and being like, oh, this person's so great, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then for us, I think 
it's your H index and your number of publications. Although even that itself varies so much by field mm -hmm. that like there's no standardized measure. Oh, and now it's social media followers. Social media too. Really quick introduction for those of our listeners who don't know what an H index is. An H index is essentially supposed to be this quantitative measure of how successful your research is. And so the way that we get it is... Okay, so an H index, in my humble understanding, is a number of how many of your papers have been cited kind of the maximum amount. So for example, if you have uh, one paper out and it's been cited one time, you have an H index of one. Um, but if you have two papers and each one of them has been cited one time, your in H index is still one. Mm -hmm. The only time you move your H index up is when you have a new publication with citations that match up higher than your current H index. So if your H index is currently five and you have out, let's say, 10 papers, it means that only five of your papers have citations of five or more. Yeah. It's like you sank my battleship. Like on one end, you have the number of papers you've published. On the other end, you have number of citations. You match that bad boy up and boom, you sank my battleship or you have an H index, which is a lot I less think, fun. I think, yeah, it's not the most intuitive explanation, but essentially it's just kind of saying you need a lot of publications, but also you need publications that have been cited really well. And so that's kind of this sort of I don't want to say makeshift measure, but it's very kind of arbitrary. And a lot, there's a lot of criticism out there for it, for how, like, how representative this actually is, right? Because when you think about different fields of research um, where, you know, potentially papers aren't coming out as often or papers aren't necessarily being cited as often because they're more niche, this H index number is going to be wildly different between different researchers. What's your age index? Is my, that a bad question? <laughs> uh, my age index is a one. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Mine's not that much better. I think mine's like four or something. That's pretty good. I mean, you know, okay. So one of the issues with age indexes that I find is that it's very easy to overinflate it, or I guess inflate it artificially. So like for example, if you're in a productive lab and you're publishing papers and they're all kind of related to each other. There's something called self-citation where you kind of just cite your own work because, oh, you know, you're building off of the work you just did. And, you know, I guess on paper that kind of makes sense, but you just end up citing all of your old stuff and that inflates your H index. And so it's not always the best measure. In a way, it's kind of like a pyramid scheme like that, you know? I know. And we're not even mid-level pyramid schemers. <laughs> we're, we're like low we're tier. Bottom we're grunts. Or the bottom of that pyramid. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel sad. Anyway, I think the point of this, though, is that these measures really exist solely for other academics and solely for other researchers, right? Like, I have never, ever in my life had a random person come up to me and be like, so what's your H index, you know? Yeah, it's not something you would put on your Tinder bio. Let's just, <laughs> let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to cross that off, whatever. <laughs> what? Anyway, our first story comes from a former PhD student whose PhD program wasn't the easiest, but was incredibly impactful. They write, I started my research journey as a consultant. In 2013, I co-founded a small NGO that designs and delivers youth empowerment programs and was hired by an indigenous health researcher to co-design and facilitate a youth empowerment program. 
Fast forward to 2017, and I had registered to do my PhD on this team, studying the second iteration of our program. A few months in, however, I realized I no longer knew my place in the program. My supervisor was inconsistent, sometimes with me assuming my old directive role, and other times frustrated with decisions I was making. I was also confronted by opposition from other academics about being the only white person on our indigenous team. It was hectic. About a year and a half in, I felt so insecure that I seriously contemplated quitting the PhD. After much processing, however, I mustered up the courage and included my supervisor in my processings about my self-doubt, my voice within this project, and my place in a broader narrative of Indigenous health. She reminded me that I had put in the work throughout my research and built strong relationships with the community and that I don't have to doubt that. As we reconciled our own partnership and figured out how to move forward, we also reminisced about the program and were brought back to hysterics thinking about the last night of the program. Our final evening was one of celebration. The youth invited their families to enjoy a feast and share what they had learned in the program and where they were headed next. It was a lovely way to end the program. We shared stories, we sang, we ate, and after all the youth performances, one of the program participants brought me onto the stage to teach me how to dance. All eyes were on us as the music started, and the program participant was leading me through a traditional dance. There I was, facing the crowd, trying to learn this incredible fast and intricate dance and move my hips to the music. People were in hysterics. I had no flow, speed, nor poise with my dancing. I was a stiff board. It was vulnerable, yet fantastic, and after much laughing and crying, I finally bowed and scurried off the stage. I was greeted with open arms by our team, thinking something along the lines of, this was never what I had anticipated my formal and serious PhD to be, but it is much, much better. Through including others in my experience, focusing on relationships, and learning to give myself grace, I learned some invaluable lessons that I will carry with me through life. That's kind of like a heartwarming story. Yeah, it's very sweet. It's very nice um, when we have stories about people getting more out of their PhD than like years of trauma, therapy, <laughs> debt, <laughs> the good stuff. A sense of existentialism. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it really highlights the fact that your PhD can be something that's very impactful, not just for you as the person learning and you know, getting this degree, but for the people who are in your research. And obviously this person had a much more like, I would say applied research where they were mm -hmm. actually in the community and they were doing things. But I think even within, you know, context of like the research participants that you have or like the people within grad school that you meet, there's definitely room for those impactful sort of lessons and relationships to form. What's like a lesson that you took out of your PhD that doesn't really have to do with your PhD? Hmm, good question. I'll tell you one I got from my master's. Don't like batteries. That, okay. Um, so the lesson <laughs> I took away from my master's uh, was that if you need to ask someone for something, a favor or some instrumental support, if you can, do it in person. Always do it in person because it's a lot harder to say no to someone when they're physically there. Mm -hmm. And I think I took that to applying to doctoral programs and also towards having conversations with people about projects, collaborations, about future employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, it's one of those like magic tricks. Really? It is. <laughs> yeah. Because any, any time I did any sort of cold calling or cold emailing, um, most of the time I didn't get a response, but 
the moment I managed to get somebody on Zoom, it was, um, I could see how uncomfortable it was for them to say no. The hook. You get the hook yeah, in there. You know? Yeah, you yeah. You just manipulate people emotionally. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so there's a lesson there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And then for my PhD, I learned that I actually can't talk to people for a long period of time. I went into my PhD using a narrative methodology, anticipating that I would enjoy uh, really learning about people's lives and um, really getting involved and having this very... Sort of intimate conversation. Yeah, having this intimate conversation with people. And towards the end of my PhD, I think even after every single interview yeah. that I've done, I would come up to you and say, I chose the wrong methodology. Yeah. And I think it works for some people. And for me, it was it's just way too much. I'm much better pulling data, analyzing data, mm -hmm. and just presenting it at people. But mm -hmm. when I had to engage with people and be vulnerable with people, no, yeah. can't do it. You know, and I think that's a really it's a really good thing to discover about yourself, you know? Like if you're gonna be going into academia still, or at the very least working with other people, knowing the confines in which you are comfortable with doing so, it's gonna make communication so much easier. Right? Yeah, and it's not like I didn't give it a, a fair try. Mm -hmm. Like I had 15 interviews yeah. and I gave it my all and I sweat it through them, but yeah, I yeah. don't I don't want to do it again. I remember transcribing some of those interviews. Oh. <laughs> so what's the... <laughs> yeah, if anybody's doing qualitative uh, interviewing as their methodology, uh, the only thing worse than getting participants and actually doing the interviews, which are so strenuous, is transcribing them and listening to yourself speak <laughs> at 50% speed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I think one really important part about this story, though, that kind of has less to do with the impact necessarily, but this person had self-doubt. They had feelings of self-doubt. They had feelings of not knowing how to use their voice. And they were able to communicate with their supervisor and kind of come to some sort of um, uh, partnership that worked for both of them, right? Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes that's not what happens. It kind of is just like, oh, well, there's this assumed authority that they have and then you're kind of like well i'll just do what they say and then i'll be out of it soon enough but i think you this person wouldn't have been able to get the same thing they got out of this program unless they had that conversation exactly. right and it definitely i think you know when you look back on stuff unless you have that conversation i think it would really color your experience and be like oh well, i didn't have a good time like even though there were these moments ultimately Mm -hmm. I felt like I was not valued. I was not, you know, appreciated. Things like that. So, yeah, I'm glad this person did that. just want to add that. Even if we see the value of doing research with members of the community and seeing the impact of our research, this sentiment isn't always shared with those within the academy. Sometimes it can be used against us. This former grad student, now professor, recounts the frustration they experienced when applying for work and having to justify the impact of their research. They write, my dissertation involved community-based research. I was really jazzed about this as a student. I felt really good about doing work that was embedded in a community and had the potential to benefit people engaged in the process. While I still feel this way and remain a strong proponent of this kind of work, what I didn't think enough about was the implications this would have for me on the job search. Although I had some really clear and demonstrable impacts from my work, both in terms of publications and real-world outcomes, I didn't think enough about how these outputs would, or wouldn't, align with what search committees were looking for. 
there aren't many open job postings and most are crafted around increasingly specific content areas rather than theoretical or methodological expertise. My experiences applying and interviewing were really deflating, as it felt like most committees had really narrow views about these niches to be filled rather than a broad appreciation for how we research, teach, and engage in service. Ultimately, I wish I'd heeded some of the warnings about the perils or drawbacks of community-based work as a grad student. It all worked out for me, so I can't complain, but the road was rough for a while, as it is for many. For our listeners, can you explain what community-based research is? Okay. Um, community-based research, aside from being like the hot thing right now, at least... <laughs> so in, in right now. At least in Canadian um, and US-based research, um, all it means is that instead of adopting a lens where the researcher comes in as the expert with a very specific research question in mind, um, it flips that on its head a little bit. And the researcher goes into the community and asks the community, hey, what is it that is important to you? How can we use our research to address the concerns mm-hmm. that you might have? Yeah. And continues to work with the community to develop the research project in a way that aligns with the community values, that engages the community stakeholders throughout the entire plan, and most important, has very explicit exit strategies where you know, you're not doing this really cool project or really cool initiative, and then the moment the researcher is gone, it's gone with them. Mm -hmm. It's uh, done in a meaningful way. So it's integrated into the community and the community members can continue either relying on your research findings, using them for their own benefit, or they can continue to maintain whatever programs that you put in place Mm -hmm. when you're inevitably gone. Kind of like legacy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, it might be obvious to some of us just hearing this, but perhaps... Why do you feel researchers avoid community-based uh-huh. research? <laughs> um, because, I mean, number one, you have to take your um, moral superiority hat off. <laughs> you to come down from the White Tower, let down yeah, your hair. <laughs> yeah, you do. And you have to, like, you have to be open-minded enough when you go into these communities that you have to understand some of them will not want to work with you and mm-hmm. others will agree to work with you, but they will expect to be fairly compensated, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, or, so foreign. <laughs> or that you will have to spend significant amount of time forming these interpersonal and these working relationships with community members. Mm-hmm. This all takes time. A lot of these aspects can't be forced. And because we're um, incredibly productivity and output driven in academia, it leads to fewer publications off the get-go. And so researchers don't want to do this because it takes a lot of emotional and temporal investment. And from our perspective, it doesn't really give us that much stuff to work with. Yeah, you don't get that much, you know, that many publications back necessarily. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you do, a lot of it is sort of evaluating the program at the end of it right? And having sort of to collate these interviews and all these different metrics and finally putting that together in a package. And then, like you just mentioned, a great point is the legacy stuff. You don't get publications out of that. You don't get yeah. I don't know, anything out of that necessarily for, for yourself as, a, as an academic. It's really just meant for the community. And so I think right now, at least in the current state of academia, there isn't, uh, like this person says, a broad appreciation for what community-based research can do and we're still very much kind of focused on what 
it can do for us versus what actual impact we can have. Yeah, and one of the things that can sort of emerge out of this um, worldview is that researchers can come in into communities and work with, quote-unquote, work with NGOs and take projects that they've already implemented that they themselves have developed and worked through within their communities and then say, oh, we're going to run an efficacy trial or we're going to come in and observe you running this program and then we're going to publish a bunch of papers. And what happens is then researchers go and they, in the academy, they're viewed as these experts mm -hmm. on these kind of social issues and they get the grants and it does not trickle down to the community. It does not trickle down to the NGOs. And basically you're taking advantage of these people and have them do all your work for you. Mm -hmm. We kind of adopt their expertise as our own, but then we only we see, yeah, yeah, sorry, that's a better word. We yeah. appropriate their expertise as our own and we, but we're the ones who see the benefits. We get exactly. the grants. They don't get anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, CBR is an attempt for academics to do it right. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not always without its mm -hmm. kind of drawbacks and failures. Yeah. But And I think, too, this person also mentions, like, you know, broad appreciation for community-based research in uh, research and in teaching. But then they also say engage in service. And I think the irony here is that service, to me, should be taking your research and making an actual impact with it yeah. versus what service really means is sit on these committees at the university and decide yeah. the direction that the university is going to take. Yeah, that's my favorite thing. When people say service, they're like, no, 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 not for the good of the public, no, no, no. for the good of the institution. <laughs> don't be silly. When we mean service, we don't mean like improve lives for others. We mean do this work for the university for free. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's not for free, but it's dedicate time that you could be spending doing other things. For the university. Yeah. yeah. And so it is uh, It is kind of disheartening to think about community-based research like that. But there is, I think, a silver lining to this, perhaps, is that a lot of, at least in Canada, a lot of grants now have a heavy emphasis on how you are going to engage members of the community and stakeholders into the research process. Grad school and academia in general can truly feel like a world unto itself, with a language currency, and culture completely distinct from reality. Our final confession comes from a PhD graduate who speaks of this altered reality and the anguish it caused them during their PhD. They write, I constantly felt like I was behind throughout my graduate studies. I came into my master's without having done a fourth year undergrad thesis and never volunteered or worked in a lab. My first graduate seminar included discussing manuscripts and publishing. Up until that point, a manuscript for me was what your professor assigned as a reading and I had no idea what the actual value of a paper was. I was constantly surrounded by messaging that manuscripts are your currency and external funding is so important. Having neither, I constantly felt I wasn't good enough. I never got grant funding and my first paper wasn't published until my second year of my PhD. It took a long time for me to focus on my own journey and not compare or get bogged down by quote-unquote the metrics. But it's hard to keep this mindset going. Why do papers and awards define worth in grad school? How can we change this message? How do we change this message? I mean, the entire system is completely flawed. Who was it that uh, made up the H index? I think it was Edward H. Mm, screw that guy. <laughs> no, Edward H. Indexian. <laughs> 
Um, the entire system is flawed. I mean, we took universities and we turned them into businesses. And I can go on an hour-long rant about this. Yeah. But I think our first... Um, step in the wrong direction was amalgamating medical schools and business schools into universities. They are professional schools and I think they should be separate. But universities were like, wow, they generate so much revenue. Let's bring them in. And then the rest of the university got restructured to match their format. Mm. But the rest of the university isn't a, like, a professional degree. Yeah. And so we treat graduate school now like a business. Well, I mean, we treat graduate students specifically as, as business, right? Like yeah. I know these people who run massive labs and they're, they're taking on like, you know, I wouldn't say like tens of grad students, but like, you know, 10, 12 grad students mm-hmm. and their grad students have massive burnout and they're not getting the attention they need from their one supervisor mm-hmm. because how could they, but they're expected to maintain this incredible output for the glory of the lab, you know, and to make it productive. Yeah, and the thing is, I wanted to tweet this, but didn't, um, because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Faculty would not be able to maintain the level of productivity that they do if not for graduate students. If you're a supervisor and you have 10 students and each one of them publishes one paper a year Mm -hmm. that you're on, that's 10 publications that you get. Mm -hmm. But the problem becomes... When we look at that and we're like, wow, this person is publishing 10, 20, however many papers a year. And then you look at new faculty who don't have that. And you're like, we're expecting you to publish at the same rate, Mm -hmm. even though you're just one person, you don't have the lab support. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're coming from a doctorate where you were in a lab, or maybe you're like me where your supervisor has other students, but their work is so removed from yours that there's no way for you to collaborate. You Mm -hmm. literally speak different languages. And the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's considered normal now to submit one paper a month. Yeah, well, I wouldn't even say normal, but I would say competitive. You know, yeah. like if you're not accruing a certain kind of output on a regular basis, regardless of what it is, and that's the crazy thing here is that it doesn't matter what you're publishing as long as you're publishing in a peer-reviewed journal or you know some form of like recognized currency, applying for grants, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. The university could not care about what it is you are actually publishing so long as people are citing it. Yeah. They don't know. They don't read it. They can't yeah. read it. How are they, how are they supposed to keep up with all this? And so they what got it, a BA in business administration. <laughs> and so what you end up having is just a system that constantly relies on the next level below it like a pyramid scheme, and just wrings them dry. And they are, you know, unfortunately, the most expendable pieces, grad students. So you just kind of keep bringing them in and bringing them dry and sending them out. And the unfortunate part of this, too, is that there aren't enough positions as we move up in this pyramid to accommodate some of these really hardworking grad students who eventually want to occupy the position that maybe their supervisor had or something else. And so... It's just this completely flawed system that, to be honest, I think is only going to change with enough uproar from the graduate student, quote unquote, working class, but also with enough... This is not the place for Marxism. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's always a place for Marxism. But then also people who are, you know, part of our generation getting into academia and fighting the system from within, you know, ah. like a virus. Yeah, <laughs> but here's the caveat. And, you know, when I started my PhD, 
<laughs> mere three and a half years ago, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to make it. I'm going to become a prof and I'm going to be different. But what I didn't realize is that in order to become a prof, I will have to sacrifice parts of myself that are telling me how wrong the system is. And by the time you get to that point, your worldview and your moral compass has become so skewed that you no longer feel that the system is broken. It's like 1984. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think it's like 2021. But yeah, I, I get your point. <laughs> yeah but or or even if you're not someone who feels so jaded about it it could also just be that you've put in an incredible amount of effort a literally top tier amount of effort to get here in this position and now you have to try and sacrifice that potentially to what get a message across that may not even be heard it's difficult it's a difficult i think balance to, to have with yourself and for a lot of people it's like no this is steady it's it's a career and it's, it's just steady. part of the game. I mean, yeah, it's steady in the way that a flash flood is steady. <laughs> like, I suppose. Like, definitely, I think we could talk about this for for hours, right? But and we will once we get our Twitch. Once we get Twitch running. going. Once we get Twitch going, we will be ranting every Sunday. I promise. <laughs> With zero breaks <laughs> because we have no work life balance. <laughs> Until then, you've been listening to Grad School Confessional. I'm your host, Dr. Yosway. Special thanks again to my co-host, Anna. Anna, at the end of the day, what has been the biggest impact research has had in your life? Um, I think I can fact check tweets a lot more efficiently now. Oh, yeah. Nice. I think that's fair. I was going to say, I got to meet my future wife. Oh, that's sweet. Right? I could tell immediately that you were going to have an impact in the rest of my life, one way or another. Less sweet. Semi-sweet is how I roll, baby. Semi-sweet. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes so that others can benefit from our mediocre advice. Please also share us with your social network and follow us on Twitter at GSConfessional. And if you have a confession you'd like to make, please use the anonymous link in the description or email thegradschoolconfessional at gmail.com. We're waiting for your funny, interesting, or controversial confessions. Until next time, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Principal Investigator, Amen. Seriously. Edward H. Indexian. Can I send a bag of dicks to his house? Hmm. <laughs>